Let's uh, bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so excited on the first Sunday of the month that we can honor your Son's sacrifice for us on Calvary's cross by partaking of the bread and the cup that remind us that he gave his life for us and shed his blood on that cross, that we might have the hope of eternal life simply because we put our trust in him, not ourselves, not in religion, not in our goodness or good works, which are filthy rags before you, but because he took our place. And we thank you for that, and we thank you that we can take this time each first Sunday of the month to honor him and remember him. Father, thank you for your word, its power, its ability to change our lives. We pray that we'll listen to you carefully this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you drive around town, you often see banners on businesses that say, Under New Management. Now, you know exactly what that means, right? Nothing. Nothing. It's usually some kind of advertising ploy. But every once in a while, every once in a while, the banner is serious. There uh, is new management. There's a new owner. There's new authority. There's new direction for that business. Well, I think we could hang that banner on Saul this morning as we look at Acts chapter 9. And we studied last Sunday about his uh, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see today in Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 19, is that he goes right to work. He has, uh, unlike so many Christians today, and maybe some of us here who take our time deciding that we ought to be doing what God wants us to do, uh, we kind of slide into it. Paul immediately went to work. Immediately you could see that Paul was under new management. Immediately you could see that God had ownership over him. Immediately you could see the new direction in his life. As I read Acts chapter 9, I think about the people uh, of Damascus and Jerusalem whom he uh, preaches to, visits in uh, our passage this morning, and I think they must, have, they must have been astounded. In fact, the Scripture says they were astounded because one minute Paul is breathing murderous intent against the church. One minute he is their main persecutor of the church. And the next minute he is the church's main advocate. Can you believe that? He is the church's main advocate. What happened? Well, what happened is God changes people. God changes people. And Paul is a thoroughly changed man. He's living out his new life. He's immediately committed himself to the things of the new life. A new sense of purpose in his life. New priorities in his life. A new master in his life. A new family in his life. A new mission to give his gifts and talents to, and a new love, God. Paul, as one writer said, was no secret saint. He at once identified with Jesus Christ. He at once 
lived out the life which God had put in, the life which God had given him. God changes people. I wanted to share with you, as we start this morning, I wanted to share with you a a, a couple of stories from Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and I'll try to keep them brief because we only have a short time this morning. I'd like to share with you the story of the philosopher, the journalist, the author and teacher, the author, and the students. Josh McDowell, in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, talks about those who were skeptics but converted to Jesus Christ. Paul would have been in that category. Let's talk first about the philosopher. In Evidence That Demands a Verdict, the author talks about Dr. Cyril Jode, head of the philosophy department of the University of London. He believed that Jesus was only a man, that God was a part of the universe, and that should the universe be destroyed, God would be destroyed. He believed that there is no such thing as sin, that man was destined for a utopia, that given a little time, man would have heaven on earth. In 1948, in the magazine section of the Los Angeles Times, there was a picture of that venerable old scholar and with it a statement concerning the dramatic change that had taken place in his life. He told how for many years he had been antagonistic toward Christianity. Now he had come to believe that sin was a reality. Two world wars and the imminence of another had demonstrated conclusively to him that man was sinful. Now he believed that the only explanation for sin was found in the Word of God, and the only solution was found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Before his death, Dr. Jode became a zealous follower of the Savior. God changes people. God changes people. Let's look at Frank Morrison. Some of you may be familiar with that name. He's a journalist. Frank Morrison was an English journalist who set out to prove that the story of Christ's resurrection was nothing but a myth. However, his probings led him to the point where he placed his faith in the risen Savior, and he went on to write a book on his findings entitled, Who Moved the Stone? A classic defense of the faith. How about the third skeptic who came to faith in Christ? Most of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis, of course. British author and teacher noted for his wit, and again, I'm sharing these from the book Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. He was noted for his wit, his imagination, and clarity of of expression, and he was a skeptic until he was converted in 1931 The following excerpts from the letters of C.S. Lewis tell his story. From a letter to his father in March of 1928, he said this, There is a religious revival going on among our undergraduates run by a Dr. Buchman. He gets a number of young men together. Some reports say women too, but I believe not. And they confess their sins to one another. Jolly, ain't it? But what can you do? 
if you try to suppress it, you only make martyrs. And then in a letter, undated, he said, but in the year 1930, he said to his friend, terrible things are happening to me. The spirit or real I is showing an alarming tendency to become much more personal and is taking the offensive and behaving just like God. You'd better come on Monday at the latest or I may have entered a monastery. Well, as you know, he came to faith in Jesus Christ and before he died in 1963, he authored a number of Christian books including Mere Christianity. Many of you are familiar with the name Lou Wallace. He's the author of what book? Ben-Hur. The author of Ben-Hur. Lou Wallace became convinced of Christ's divinity after studying the Bible in preparation for writing Ben-Hur, a work that was initially to to present Christ as a mere man. He became a Christian through his study of the life of Christ and preparing to write the story. Isn't that amazing? Let me share the story quickly of two young men, students, Gilbert West and Lord Littleton, who went to Oxford. They were determined. uh, This comes from a different book. This comes from Michael Green's Man Alive. And he shares this story. These two students were determined to attack the very basis of the Christian faith. So Littleton settled down to prove that Saul of Tarsus was never converted to Christianity and West to demonstrate that Jesus never rose from the tomb. Whoa, pretty formidable, right? Sometime later, they met to discuss their findings. Both were a little sheepish, for they had come independently to similar and disturbing conclusions. Littleton found on examination that Saul of Tarsus did become a radically new man through his conversion to Christianity. And West found that the evidence pointed unmistakably to the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. You may still find his book in a large library. It's entitled Observations on the History and Evidences of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ and was published in 1747. On the flyleaf of the book, he has printed his telling quotation, Blame not before thou hast examined the truth. What a great statement, right? Blame not before thou hast examined the truth. Well, let me share one more. This is not a skeptic, but I want to share one more story with you because... Uh, As one writer said, never underestimate the value of one person brought to Christ. Never underestimate the value of one person brought to Christ. Do any of you know the name Edward Kimball? Yeah, I wouldn't have either. Edward Kimball on April 21st, 1855, led one of his Sunday school boys to faith and Jesus Christ. Little did he realize that Dwight L. Moody would one day become the world-leading evangelist. Now I want to encourage you, those of you who teach children, you know, sometimes it seems like a thankless job. Don't shake your head, it's okay. (laughs) I, 
I understand that sometimes it seems like a thankless job, but I want to tell you, as this writer said, never underestimate, underestimate the value of one person brought to Christ. So if you teach in the greenhouse, uh, if you don't, we have a place for you, by the way. Um, if you teach in the greenhouse, or if you serve in the Awana program, or if you serve in the junior, senior high, and Scott's looking for some folks to step up. <laughs> uh, if you serve in children's ministry, don't ever belittle what you do. Don't ever say it's not important or nobody knows because God knows and you may encounter a Dwight L. Moody and be responsible for them hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that's, that's, God, God changes people. Don't we have an amazing God? God changes people. And we're going to see just how much he uh, changed Paul here. The context of chapter 9. I just looked at that clock. Surely something's wrong with that, Steve. We should have it checked this week. I think it is definitely broken. <laughs> um, the context of chapter 9 is God is preparing for the mission to the Gentiles by preparing Paul, who would be the apostle to the Gentiles. And uh, the gospel goes to the Gentiles not by any human initiative, but because of God's initiative. He sets apart Paul, who would be the preacher who would bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and he sets up the circumstances for Paul to do that. And that's exactly what we're seeing in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, and we'll see more of it in chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, in a big way, the gospel will go to the Gentiles. So that's what's going on here. Let's look at the first couple of verses in verse 19. The, the latter part of verse 19, we call it 19b. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. I want you to underline the next two words if you have an NIV Bible. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. At once. He didn't wait. He didn't take his time. He didn't say, well, I better see if this takes. I better see if this is real. He at once began to preach the gospel. Now that must have turned so many heads. Think about that. He is on his way with warrants from the high priest in Jerusalem to arrest believers in Jesus Christ. And the next day almost, he is doing what? Preaching the very Christ that he was arresting people for putting their faith in. His strategy was to preach in the synagogues first, and he carried out that strategy all throughout his ministry. His credentials from the high priest no doubt opened doors for him, but boy, did they get a different message, didn't they? As he preached Jesus Christ. And it tells us here that he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. The content of his teaching was that Jesus was the Son of God. Saul learned that on the road to Damascus, and his teaching focused on two things about Jesus. Number one, that he is the Son of God because only a divine person could die a redemptive death. Only a divi 
divine person could die a redemptive death. Son of God one writer said, was used in the Old Testament of the anointed king of Israel and of the coming Messiah. F.F. Bruce, the great scholar, said this, the people of Jesus' day believed the Messiah to be the Son of God. Son of God reflected Jesus' unique relationship with the Father and his function as a revealer of, as the revealer of the Father. He focused on teaching that Jesus is the Son of God, the divine person, the divine Son of God. He focused, secondly, on the fact that Jesus was the expected Messiah. He was the Mashiach, the Christ, the one who they expected to come, the Savior. Verse 21, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call in that name, this name, and hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? They were astonished. Literally, that word astonished in Greek means they were struck out of their senses. They were beside themselves. They were beside themselves. Isn't he the one who lay waste to the believers in Jerusalem. That's the meaning of raising havoc in Jerusalem. Isn't he the one who laid waste to the believers in Jerusalem? Isn't he that person? Could it be there's someone else? Could there be somebody is impersonating him? But Paul preached the very person that those he was trying to wipe out, those he was trying to destroy, those he was trying to remove from the face of the earth, he's winding up here a believer in that person. His life changed because God changes people. God changes people and they are astounded at his message one person said this about Paul's message. When I whittle down the message from Paul, it's this, nobody is beyond the reach of the grace of God. Isn't that amazing? Who of, who of all people would have known that nobody's beyond the grace of God? Think about Paul. Read 1 Timothy sometime. Not right now, please. But read 1 Timothy sometime. And, and see Paul's own reflection on what God did for him. When Paul called himself the chief of sinners, Paul could not believe that God could save him after all that he did. Nobody is beyond the right reach of the grace of God. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. I think that's such a powerful message that the world needs to hear. To hear Paul say, I am the chief of sinners, and yet I can do nothing without the grace of God. Everything, everyone is redeemable. Everything, everyone is redeemable. God changes people. And Acts chapter 9 is a prime example of how God can change people. 
Well, verse 22, we read this, Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. He taught, and remember, whenever you see the word Christ in the Bible, think Messiah, think anointed one, because the word Christ is the translation, the English uh, translation of Christos, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Mashiach, which means what? Messiah. Messiah. So whenever you see Christ, don't just think, oh, that's his last name. It is Jesus, the human person, who is God's divine person, the Messiah. The Messiah. He taught that Jesus is the Messiah, and he baffled them. They were bewildered. They were confused. Why? Because previously he was trying to say he's just a man and he's not raised from the dead. But Saul met him on the road to Damascus. And now he knows he's alive from the dead. And he's been captured by that. So we read that Paul was proving that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, the word translated proving there is an interesting word in Greek. It means putting together. Putting together. The idea is that what Paul would do is he would put together the Old Testament prophecies with their fulfillments in Jesus Christ. That's how he was proving that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, by looking at the Old Testament. And remember, Paul was an expert in the Old Testament. Paul was an expert in the Old Testament. And so he would take the Old Testament prophecies and he would show how they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the more the opposition grew, the stronger Paul became. The more the opposition grew, the stronger Paul became. Well, verses 23 and 24, after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by... By the way, do you notice he already has followers? The word followers there is the Greek word mathetes, which means disciples, learners, learners. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is a learner. Paul already had learners, those who followed him. His followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. By the way, he repeats that account in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 32 and 33. What an inauspicious way to begin his ministry, right? I mean, he just, he, he's, they're, they're wanting to kill him like he wanted to kill the believers. They're wanting to kill him like he wanted to kill the believers. And he had to be, apparently one of his followers had a, a home in the wall of the city with a window and they let him out in a basket. So I guess we could say he was a basket case. 
Thank you very much. I'll be here all week. <laughs> Verse 25, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Uh, he had to leave Damascus. And by the way, in between here, his, his travels, we'll, we'll look at another time, but he, uh, in chapter 9, it, it kind of uh, jumps over a couple of places he went. He went to Jerusalem, he went to Damascus, he went to Arabia, he returned to Damascus, he went to Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, they shuffled him down to Caesarea and back to Tarsus, his hometown. Uh, so he made a lot of traveling there, but at this point, he's uh, let down through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem... He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid. Not believing that he really was a disciple. A little like Ananias, wasn't it? But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Now, of all people, you would expect that Barnabas would be the one that would come alongside Paul, right? The disciples in Jerusalem, the apostles in Jerusalem, and by the way, it appears it was only Peter, capital A apostle, who was there at the time, according to Galatians, and James, the half-brother of the Lord, who was a low, lowercase a apostle, it appears that they were the only ones there at the time, but they didn't want anything to do with Paul. They were afraid that it was a trick. They were afraid that it was a trick. But Barnabas comes to the rescue. Remember what Barnabas' name means? Son of encouragement. Encouragement. You would expect that if anybody would help Paul in this situation, it would be Barnabas, and it was. He convinced the apostles about Saul's conversion, and they met with him. We'll see Barnabas intersecting Saul's life in so many ways. He brings Saul to Antioch to minister from, from Tarsus to Antioch. He, along with the elders, delivers the gifts for the elders in Judea. He is sent out with Paul on the first missionary journey. He's side by side with Paul opposing the legalists who came to Antioch. He went with Paul to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. He delivered the response, the letter from the Jerusalem council to Antioch. And sadly, he and Paul differed and split over John Mark. And we'll get to that in Acts chapter 16. But the son of encouragement at this stage stands up for Paul. So Paul stayed, so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. Now, do you remember who the Grecian Jews are? They're the ones that Stephen gave his sermon to. They are the ones who did what? Put Stephen to death. It's interesting. It's like Saul is taking Stephen's place. Remember Saul was giving approval to Stephen's death. Saul was watching the cloaks of those who put Stephen to death. 
Saul was in agreement with what with putting Stephen to death. And now Saul is being opposed by those very same Grecian Jews. He spoke boldly in the name of the Lord. Now, there are some commentators who believe that, that maybe Paul was a little bit too aggressive. Well, I believe he was probably zealous. <laughs> He was zealous before he was a believer. You would expect and know that he would be zealous. By the way, God doesn't... I, just, I spend a lot of time on walls. It drives me up a wall. When I think about, sometimes Christians have the idea that once you come to faith in Jesus Christ, God has a cookie cutter that he makes all of us alike. Saul was zealous before he was a believer in Jesus Christ. But once he understood the truth and once he was under the new management of God, he was zealous for God. Zealous for Jesus Christ. Well, he spoke boldly. I like what one writer said, there's a diff difficult balance for all of us to maintain as we witness. We must present compellingly the message that Jesus alone saves, and yet we must do so in such a way that others are one rather than offended. Uh, the way I like to think of it is this. If I share the word of God with somebody and they are offended, that is the word of God offending them, not me. But I should not be offensive in the way I share my faith with them. I should not be offensive with the way I share my faith with them, with the words I use, with the attitude, the facial expression, the nonverbal communication. I should not be offensive in those things. If the word of God offends, so be it. But we should not be offensive in sharing it. Well, he talked and debated with the Grecian Jews. They tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Let's get Saul out of here. <laughs> Verse 31, then the church throughout Galilee, uh, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And by the way, we don't have any of the background to the gospel going to Galilee. We have the gospel going to Judea, the gospel going to the Samaritans. We don't have information about the gospel going to Galilee. The church enjoyed a time of peace that was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Well, one writer said, and we'll have to close here, I've already stolen a little of Steve's time. Said this, Saul devoted the rest of his life, including all his material and physical resources, to the service of Christ the Lord who surprised him on the Damascus road. Once we see who Jesus is, we are never the same again. We too become his chosen instruments, whether the vision comes in dramatic Damascus Road fashion or through quiet interaction with the Bible and the Spirit. The only reasonable response, please hear this, this is the thing I want you to hear, the only reasonable response is to give ourselves, including all our energies and material resources, to serving him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the example of Saul. Thank you for his zealousness under 
your management. May we be zealous like him and give ourselves wholly to you in Jesus' name.